0: Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the middle that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. Hello everybody, I'm Annabelle and I'm absolutely fine, but last night someone told me about something on Netflix that you may know about, so you go on and you just go to search and you put in fire and it gives you a roaring fireplace on your telly. I mean the joy. I can't begin to tell you. It's a bit fucking stupid because my telly's sort of on the floor next to an actual fireplace that I can A, not be asked to use. It's got like books and dust in it. And B, I think it's sort of like a bit illegal in London, clean air, all that sort of stuff, um, which is obviously much more important than the can't be asked bit. Although the can't be asked bit is the thing that surrounds me and my life. Anyway, so it has a crackle as well. It's an orange glow that you fast forward 10 minutes so it really gets going. It starts off with obviously the thing's just been lit. Crackles away. And as we know that my concentration, you know, is 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 degrading and and declining. Also my tolerance for any sort of violence, distress, sadness or tension, anything on telly, I can't really watch anything with a narrative arc. I mean the last couple of weeks Love Island All Stars has been just a whole new low. Do not recommend. <laughs> ten out of ten. And do not recommend. This might be the solution. So I sat there and I didn't so much sort of meditate on the crackling um, fire on on the on yet another screen. I just sort of blanked out on it. What did you do, in fact? Well, I Facetimed <laughs> Emily, and Emily said, "Did you mean to Facetime me?" I went, "Yes." Am I right in thinking that your telly is actually positioned? in your unused fireplace she said yes i said you have to see this oh
1: my god which which i did it was a, amazing and then of course our whole internet network collapsed <laughs> and uh, so that wasn't actually the relaxing fire crackling experience but still i'm thrilled for you anyway i plan to have it on all the time oh <laughs> uh, thanks annabelle well i'm emily and i'm absolutely fine but i'm absolutely haunted Poetry, they say, is supposed to be good for you. I started sending you poems
0: around to me the other day. You I? did?
1: Anyway, I looked up a poem by, or I heard a line from a po- poem by Mary Oliver, and it was, what are you going to do with your wild and precious life? And I feel sick with panic. What am know, I going to I, do? I know
0: this poem. Yes. And it's actually worse than that. Oh? Because what she actually oh. says is, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one oh. wild and precious what? life? Sick. One, only One.
1: Well, I don't know what it is. But anyway, thanks, Mary Oliver. Thanks, Annabelle. Now that's made it worse. All I can think about is what am I going to do with my one wild and precious life? What am I going to do? Anyway, so poetry is supposed to be relaxing, restful. Fuck that. I feel so stressed. Anyway, someone who is doing a lot with their one wild and precious life is writer and activist Sophie Williams. Now. We are delighted and a little awed to have her here. Sophie is formidable. She is the writer of Anti-Racist, Ally and Millennial Black and is the global expert on the glass cliff phenomenon, which is what her latest book, The Glass Cliff, Why Women in Power, Undermined and How to Fight Back is all about. She is gonna talk us through what many of us instinctively question, but are too afraid, tired, busy to ask, even now, are the opportunities being given to women really equal to those of men? Anyway, before we get sticky, Sophie, how are you? Hi, I am absolutely fine, thank you. Except to continue
2: on the Netflix theme, I have been watching one day the remake of that book on Netflix and I'm watching it with my partner and I have read the book, but he hasn't. So I know that the thing is going to happen, but he doesn't. And I I think tonight's going to be the night where I'm going to maybe have to like
1: hold a hand or wipe away a tear. Bracing Um, yourself. Yeah, yeah. another
0: unrelaxing screen experience.
1: I had exactly the same experience where I had read the book and knew the thing and my husband did not know. And it was awful. Really, (laughs) It was awful. Yes. But also partly because I felt completely to pieces as well. So it was I was ugly crying. Anyway, thanks one day. Another, another piece Didn't of literature annoying us. Didn't touch the sides with me.
0: Really? Really odd. Nope. I, I think it's because I think that maybe um, maybe in some areas, maybe I'm a bit of a contrarian. When there's a lot of hype around something, <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: I find it very hard to emotionally respond to it. And it's happened again and again, hasn't it? Yes, it does. And so I just, it was very strange. One day I really thought that I react to Schmaltz very emotionally. Nope, nothing. Just turned it off and carried on with my business. Wow, less emotionally than the
2: fireplace, maybe.
0: <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, I'm reducing and contracting as a person, as a human soul. But I did respond emotionally to your book, The Glass Cliff, yeah. um, which is, uh, you know, another wonderful conversational, emotional, angry elegant piece of research and prose from from you, your third book. And I think that we could start, wouldn't we, by telling people who who maybe do know what the glass ceiling is, but don't know what the glass cliff is, what it actually is. And can you just explain to us what the glass cliff
2: is? Absolutely. So the glass cliff is essentially what happens to women and racially marginalised men once they've broken through the glass ceiling. And what that generally means is Women, we tend to see, are given opportunities to lead when there is already some kind of crisis. And so women are often put in the position of being less likely to succeed when they take on leadership positions because of our bias towards bringing them in when there is a problem to fix or a mess to clean up, which means that women generally have shorter times in leadership and are seen as being less successful. But that's because we haven't looked at the context that we're bringing women in to lead during. And so, yeah, it's looking at what really happens on the other side of the glass ceiling and whether it really is opportunities for equal amounts of success that we're giving to marginalized leaders at the same time as the more standard white male leader.
0: So, if you're saying that women and marginalized males are brought in after an already prolonged period of Poor performance in a business or Mm organisation, then there is a high, a very high risk of organisational systemic failure, really, that can't be laid at the feet of that individual logically, but generally is.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And although we haven't had the words for the glass cliff up to now, and even I'm so used to talking about the glass ceiling that sometimes I get them muddled up and have to be like, no, no, no. Um, But because we haven't had the words for the glass cliff to now, Although we've seen it a lot, we generally haven't been able to explain it. Mm. And so I think if you live in the UK, one of the easiest examples to point to is Theresa May um, becoming Prime Minister. She became Prime Minister after David Cameron had led the UK to the Brexit referendum. Theresa May had been pro-Remain, but once the referendum had decided to, to exit to Brexit... None of the men who led us to that point were there. Nigel Farage stepped away. Boris Johnson suddenly didn't want to be there anymore. David Cameron disappeared. And Theresa May took on this role of having to lead the country through this moment of crisis. And really, it's her name that gets associated with that period, rather than any of the men who took us to that point. She was led to that moment. And it's really, I always want to be like, I'm not a Tory, (laughs) but she's the easiest person to point to in a public sense. Um, So yeah, she took on this this problem. There was already a mess. She became associated with it. And then she was able to be pushed out and replaced by a man when it came to actually doing the final job of getting a deal over the line. And we see that over and over again with different women in different situations. It's depressing, isn't it? Because we all have got very
0: used to and almost comfortable with, you say this in your book, the narrative of progress and positive change, girl bosses, CEOs, having it all. And yet, will you just tell us about the speech that you heard that alerted you to this phenomenon and some of the things that were within that particular speech? I think it was the UN, was it?
2: Yeah. So when I was... Last year, I was selected to be a UK delegate to the United Nations Commission for the State of Women Conference, which is an annual conference held every year. And that was cool and amazing. And I couldn't believe I got to be back a UN delegate. That was incredible. And so I went to the first session and it was opened by the Secretary General of the United Nations. And he was talking about this idea of progress, and this idea of progress in women's rights. And it wasn't the speech I expected, because instead of a speech that was celebrating all of the progress and, you know, opening this conference up for like this big, like triumphant conversation, It was talking about how much ground had been lost. It was talking about how we had years and years of incremental progress, but thanks to a mixture of COVID and emerging technologies not being equally available to men and women, women's progress had not only stalled, but it had fallen backwards. And so I think that's just a conversation that we don't have. I think we are so used to looking for the positive and we are so conditioned to talk about women's progress in these grand stories of success and how far we've come but that just really showed me that there was a message that was repeated time and time again throughout the conference through different speakers and different disciplines and different topics and the message just kept being like we did make really great progress but we are going backwards now and I found that so shocking.
0: Mm. Just to quote you at you, sorry from your book, the pay gap since the 70s has widened from 69% to 72%. And the other thing that really struck me was, again, it's a a UN study. Pre-COVID, the UN estimated we were 100 years away from um, having gender equality. And in 2023, that figure rose to 300 years away globally. So it's quite the slide backwards, isn't it?
2: It is. And to, to make that even more local, pre-Covid, that estimate of 100 years was 100 years for global gender equality. Yeah. In 2023, when they reassessed that, you know, after Covid, that is 120 years for the UK alone to achieve gender equality. That's such a huge slip back that, that no one talks about. And I think that was so much of what I wanted to do with this book overall. I wanted to take these things from really like robust, proven, respected sources and just be like, "Have you heard about this?" Because because you should. Yeah, yeah, and this book concentrates really,
0: doesn't it, on on what happens really when you've broken through the glass ceiling, or you know, mm-hmm. maybe you're standing on it, maybe you're peering up through it, and and you know, you maybe you've entered C-suite executive leadership level, and you know, and that's that's really where it can start to go very wrong.
1: Well, actually, speaking of C-suite, actually, I'm going to pull out some statistics from. The excellent book. What was so interesting about the fact that when you come in at an entry level position, this is for women of color, nineteen percent of the workforce at entry level, but then five percent C-suite, which is just an appalling drop. I mean uh, uh, horrific. white women, twenty nine percent at entry level to twenty one percent in the c-suite, and then white men, which is just so annoying, and uh, hold on to your hold on to your hats, listeners. 33% at entry level, 61% C-suite. It doubles. It's like, as everybody else has passed away and overlooked, ignored, whatever leaves because their culture or whatever, and then you have this kind of ballooning C-suite presence.
0: What, one of the things I really liked about your book was what it didn't say was babies, babies, babies. Maternity leave, maternity, mm. that's the problem. Babies, yeah. babies, they have babies, babies. It, 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 and I'm really happy you didn't, because con- that's the easy narrative, isn't it? Babies childcare, babies childcare. Um, did you consciously lean away from that a little bit? Was this just not about that?
2: It's not about that, because it's not true. i was <laughs> just trying to think of like a smart, interesting, fun way to say it, but it's just not true. So some people do leave the workforce to have children. We tend to find that actually, when we ask men and women their reasons for leaving the workforce, only about 2% of people, 2% of men and 2% of women cite having a family wanting to start a family or needing to care for a family as a factor in that decision so it's an incredibly small percentage of anyone and it's equally distributed between men and women and I don't think there's any um, information about non-binary people or not that I was able to find when I was doing my research and so if I'm honest because I am child free by choice it isn't part of my thinking it isn't part of my when I think about what's going on my mind doesn't automatically go to children but actually it's something that I had lots of conversations with my editor about because my editor is a man and I was like I'm aware that I have something of a blind spot when it comes to children and you know people's (laughs) relation people's relationship with those guys like what are they (laughs) up to You know, I feel like when you have one, it becomes quite important. So maybe it's a big thing if I don't if I don't mention it. And then when I got that that piece of research that showed that it wasn't this sort of big defining career ending, you know, it's always framed in this way of like, I feel like that's the the origin of the "Can women have it all?" conversation, right? And like, that's not it all. That's just some of the bits that some of the people want. But yes, I was worried that maybe leaving out. A focus on on child care, child having, child rearing was an oversight. But that stat really showed me that, no, we, we have this conversation a lot, but it is disproportionate to the amount that it does actually factor in people's decision making.
0: This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Now, you guys know that we're not shy about getting things off our chest. The tiny inconveniences that can ruin our days to the big, overwhelming worries that can flood our nights. Trouble is, we all got into the habit of saying, I'm absolutely fine. Emily and I added the but specifically to get off autopilot and give ourselves the space to say what we were really experiencing.
1: But we weren't always so free with our inner furies. A few years ago, I began experiencing debilitating panic attacks because I felt I couldn't tell anyone all the things that I was feeling, that I was not coping, that I felt like a failure. I was so ashamed. So I kept it all bottled inside. And of course, it started leaking out. It was only when I found a therapist and began sharing those doubts and insecurities with her that the panic began to dissipate. Because therapy can
0: be a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge.
1: With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash midalt. That's better... H-E-L-P dot com slash MidAlt. Better help, because sometimes the best thing to do is acknowledge
0: that we are not, in fact, absolutely fine. Mm -mm. It just shows you what women who have much more of the, uh, generally the emotional and practical labour at home, are managing to pull off if it's only 2%. So we we don't even really have to talk about it within this context. But there is that, you know, just when you think you've made it, then... It's a bit like you're, you're taxed on your own womanhood yet again at that certain point in your career. It's like at no point are you as safe professionally as a man.
2: No, absolutely. And if I can just take you back to that sort of housework conversation for just a, a moment. That idea of housework, that idea of motherhood, I thought showed up in a really interesting way actually doing the research which is although women are not it seems choosing to leave the workforce in any great numbers because of having children or a desire to have children we still find that women are expected and it's part of what causes the glass cliff to be mother to be mother in the workplace to be mother in the office and that shows up by women being expected to do all of this sort of office housework kind of of task whether that is making coffees or taking meetings or sort of doing one of these unrecognised tasks. And one of the main reasons that we think we see the glass cliff playing out, one of the main reasons that we think we see women being more likely to be brought into a business when there is already a big problem to be solved is this expectation of soft skills, this expectation of, you know, these maternal nurturing skills. So women, it seems, are brought into these really hard to succeed in positions because we just think they'll be nice, because we think they'll be soft and caring and gentle. And if a business has already gone through a hard time, then suddenly these soft skills that it's presumed women had, which are really denigrated and not valued um, when a business is doing well, suddenly become a premium for business. They suddenly want someone to wrap them up and hold their heads and stroke their hair and say, we're gonna be okay. And that, I think, is a big part of why we are seeing women being put into these disproportionately risky positions, because there is a problem. And we think, who solves problems? Mums do. Mums are going to keep us safe. So we're going to bring in one of those to look after us through this time.
0: You say, don't you, think manager, think male, think crisis, think female. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't make sense that we all now know, this is, I don't know the the, the exact numbers on this, but w- but we know that businesses with more gender diversity at board level and in leadership roles are more profitable. and yet female CEOs are 45 percent more likely to be fired than male CEOs. that the math just doesn't really work does no, none it? of the
1: maths works. I, I feel like everything is an impossible lose-lose situation for women in this in these contexts.
0: so uh, and did you find that so what has happened was I think in fact I think you did because I think you called it the great breakup is that women, mm highly skilled, brilliant women are falling away. What do you think is the awareness among the professional female working population that this is happening?
2: None, I don't think so. I think we all know anecdotally, right? I think we all know. I had this amazing friend, this amazing boss, this amazing woman who I know. I saw her go into this tough situation. I saw her take on the blame for all of the problems in that situation, even problems that started before she arrived. And then I saw her fail. Like That's the narrative that we get, but I don't think we've had the words to understand it as a a shared phenomenon. And I think because we haven't had those words, because we haven't had that framing or that context, we haven't been able to see it as a shared experience. Instead, the message we get back is women are not good leaders. Women don't lead to success. And that's because there are so few female leaders, I think, we can pick out individuals and use them as totems or emblems or symbols of all of women's abilities to lead but what we don't do is we don't look at the context around and before that and if we did that I think we would be able to find the community in that I think we'd be able to find the shared experience in that and I think we'd be able to see that it's not a coincidence that these women keep getting set up to fail But because we don't look at them as a group level, because we're so focused on individuality, we look at them on an individual basis, we just say, well, we've had these women as individuals and they haven't worked. So women don't work. Instead of saying... We had these women and they all came into these same really disproportionately difficult situations. Maybe we should look at why that happens. But because we don't zoom out that far, we don't find those connections, I don't think.
1: I know there's that sort of endless trope that's always bandied around about how many more CEOs called John there are than women. But of course, you know, the Johns, would you be able to name the John that failed? I'm sure there've been loads, but of course you wouldn't because it's just like this homogenous mass of Johns. So it doesn't really matter. But of course, you know, when there's the one woman, and this seems to be the problem sort of consistently throughout, because it if you are the one person at the top and you don't look like or feel like the other people in the top sort of room, then immediately you're not supported, right? You're also representing everybody like you. So women
0: are not good leaders. You know, women make up only 2.8% of CEOs in the European Union. I mean, you know that, Sophie, because you wrote it. But my God, (laughs) International Women's Day coming up. I mean, I'm not a a huge fan, but there was this interesting bot that that came to life last International Women's Day, where every time a business published on social media, yay, International Women's Day, we're so pro-women, it automatically published their pay gap. Amazing, which was not great for most of them, which is a bandwagoning. Imagine if this, if, if the same thing happened with this, and they say, "Well, what happened to your senior-level women, or that woman, or that woman, mm-hmm. or that woman who was brought in? You know, six months before bankruptcy, mm-hmm. it would be it would be interesting if one could do some sort of more comprehensive study of this. I wonder what would we find—more of the same? Absolutely.
2: So the the thing about the glass cliff is it. It has moved beyond a the theory. It is at this point a phenomenon. So there's 20 years of research around the world that backs up this phenomenon. And so it won't take long to be able to spot businesses that have this. And I I made the decision to start every chapter of the book with a case study of a woman in a high profile business who I believe has suffered at the hands of the glass cliff. But yeah, I feel like businesses are so used to being able to do lip service, right? They're so used to being able to have good PR and good comms teams and be able to say, yes, we care about this issue or that issue, or, you know, looking back to 2020, we're going to post a black square and we're going to do this. And, you know, we're going to have these tough conversations and we support women. But when you dig into the actual data and stats and realities, the the lived experiences of the people who, who work with them for them. It's almost never there. No,
0: and then they're able to say, you see, we're so brave as a corporation, we tried it and it didn't go so well because women aren't good leaders.
1: Well, this is what appalled me. There was a quote from the Wall Street Journal about the Silicon Valley bank collapse. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the line was, the company may have been distracted by diversity demands as mm-hmm. a reason for an entire bank failing may have been distracted by diversity demands. From the Wall Street Journal, how can we compete against that immediate door closing? I mean, it's just absolutely horrific.
2: And did you see in that same piece about the Silicon Valley Bank, they say, is the reason that the bank collapsed because it had, and I'm sorry, this is a quote, one black, one LGBT and like one veteran. Woman. Yeah, one woman. Oh yeah, one veteran. It's like, what are you talking about? And then the other people come in and they say, this bank is a lot less diverse than any of the other successful banks. It's just so wild that people would just be like, well, obviously they were trying to be too woke and it killed them. Like, what are you talking about? letting those creatures into the boardroom <laughs> what a
0: mistake what a mistake but of course if you don't want to let these creatures into the boardroom then you listed some excuses that you'd heard for not having women on boards and my favorite was the one who said something like i can't appoint a woman just cuz i want oh, to ladies that's a classic one i'm a good guy we've already got one yeah mm-hmm. as you said you know the, the onlys the only one of whoever you are mm-hmm shareholders are interested you know all the
1: good ones are taken I love all the good ones are taken it's classics like yeah there's only about five good ones and they're all gone
0: I don't think women
1: feel comfortable I mean if you say that out loud I don't understand how you don't immediately hear yourself say that and think oh well maybe I could find a way of making it more comfortable I mean yeah the obstacles are endless aren't they basically
0: so what is the call to action
1: yes
2: What do you think that really we could all do? I think the first call to action is just to be aware of the words, the glass cliff. The words, the glass ceiling, are so deeply embedded in our culture that when someone comes to us and says, I'm having trouble getting from this level to another, we automatically understand that it's not going to be necessarily due to that person's lack of skill, lack of talent, lack of ambition, lack of ability. It's due to this structural, cultural barrier that we know we have put in in place and that we know that women have to fight against but when we talk about women above a certain level when we talk about women who have seemingly been successful and broken through we sort of feel like maybe she's this this special magical uh I don't know I want to say like manic pixie dream girl like manic pixie boss lady but you know she's this special uh, person who's been able to do all of this stuff And so we start to be really individualistic, right? We start to be like, this is all down to her. And if she does well, really great. And if she doesn't, that is because she has failed. She wasn't good enough. She wasn't ready enough. She wasn't connected enough, whatever it is. So I think the first thing we have to do is to be aware that the glass cliff is real and is a group level societal phenomenon. It's not due to one woman being good or bad at leading. So we have to acknowledge that. And the second thing that we can do is when we are fed these narratives, and we saw it with, I don't remember her name, top of my head, but there was a woman who was the group head of H&M Group. And in January of this year, she was exited very, very suddenly and replaced by a white man. And that's something called the saviour effect. And that's what we see time and time again in these businesses who bring women into lead. We see them being given these really short, time periods to make it a success and if they don't and often they don't because they are not given the same tools the same time this is the same support as their male counterparts they are thrown off the edge of the cliff they are you know they lose their jobs and they lose their reputations along the way so when we see these stories like we saw with the group head of h H&M and a couple of weeks ago like we see sometimes in the conversation around Dame Sharon White who's currently Um, on the way out of John Lewis' group, we can look at the circumstances that they came into. We can look at the reality of the businesses, where they were when they arrived and where they are when they're leaving. And also often what we see is, although we have these narratives about these businesses failing, they're actually in a much better position than they were when these women took them on. They're in a much better position than they started, thanks to the leadership and growth and ambition of these women. But businesses need, it seems, this moment of saying, we have these problems and they've become associated with this person, with this woman. And now we're solving our problems. So we're getting rid of this person. We're getting rid of this woman. We're bringing in a leader who you recognise and you can trust. And we're going to be fine from here. So I think, and I, I think a lot because I get asked a lot about what can we do. And I think the main thing that we can do is become sort of media literate to this, is to start to be able to read these conversations, but to then look at the data behind them, look at the circumstance behind them and say, this is what you're telling me, because you always tell me that women have done this bad job. But what's the reality here? So I really think just awareness of the phenomenon is an incredible starting point, because it allows us to stop putting blame for perceived failure onto the shoulders of individual women and then extrapolating that out and imagining that it means that no women have the potential to be successful.
0: Yeah, because being underrepresented creates such a burden on on the trailblazers and then creates a culture of blame around them for their own brilliance and bravery.
2: Yes. So I was very uh, lucky to be able to speak to both of you about the glass cliff before we published, because I was hoping to include some interviews and you two So kindly gave me some of your time. Um, And then my editor was like, no, no interviews. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) But the analogy that you drew then um, really stuck with me. And it was about a nurse and a nurse coming in and taking care of you when you're sick. And that's what these women are doing for these businesses. They're coming in and they're saying, I'm going to put myself at risk. I'm going to put myself in harm's way. I'm going to do the dirty, hard, unrecognized work of caring for you and of making you better. But then when these people get better, they just say, I don't like that nurse. She reminds me of being ill. Can we get rid of her now? Yes, or
0: even I had an operation two weeks ago and you get your, you know, the male surgeon who slices you up and is never to be seen again. Mm -hmm. And then you get brilliant nurses who are checking your vital signs, checking you don't hemorrhage, letting you vomit into their kidney bowl, whatever it might be, giving you the painkillers you desperately need. And as you say, if there was a nurse that was a bit unfriendly, you'd say, oh, I didn't like that nurse. Rather, who you know, when it's four in the morning and she's incredibly overworked, rather than where's the fucking surgeon Mm -hmm. when it went wrong, if it was to go wrong, it would be on the nurse's watch that it went wrong.
2: Yeah, that's true, actually. Because the surgeon's gone to play golf. Yes. And talking about this sort of son at the top who gets to save the day and have that sort of great moment. And then all of sort of that difficulty of that care work, that ongoing care lies with the nurse. And I think we've also spoken about how we often see men at the very top of businesses, top of organisations, taking the top jobs with the top salaries and having that sort of visible leadership. And that's that's true even in industries where women are really overrepresented. So we talked at the start about how white men start with much less representation and that grows up to 61%. That makes them the only group, the only demographic group whose representation grows as you get to the C-suite. But yeah, in, in industries that are traditionally feminine... And those are things like care work, those are teaching, those are hospitality, those are, you know, things linked to making a nice environment and reminding you of being at home. We see what's the opposite of the glass cliff playing out, and that's called the glass escalator. And that means that in businesses that are disproportionately women, in industries that are disproportionately women, to take nursing as an example, although women make up the largest group of that overall, men still float to the top men still get to ride that invisible glass escalator to the very top of those careers. So if we take the NHS for example, men represent 31% of the entire NHS employment group. But when we look at the highest paying jobs, although they're just 31% of the entire NHS, men represent 42% of the highest paying jobs in the whole organisation. Women on the other hand are clustered in the lowest paying jobs so women hold 78 percent of the lowest paying jobs in the nhs despite representing the vast majority of the workforce and so i like to think of all of these things as sort of um, my glass menagerie like the, the you
1: know,
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's because my degree is in theater um but yeah i think the glass cliff which pushes women over the glass escalator that speeds up men's progressions and the glass ceiling that we find so many people hitting their heads against i think i think it's no coincidence that all of these things are glass right that all of these things are invisible that all of these things are unspoken but i think once we get to shine a light on some of those invisible glass advantages or obstacles, we can start to have a much better and much truer conversation about what helps and what hinders people in the workplace.
0: Because lest we forget, women are now better educated you know, than mm-hmm. men. So they're going in well qualified mm-hmm. and that is being taken from them. And also right at the beginning, would you just remind us what the the missing rung is on the career ladder, the broken rung?
2: Absolutely. So the broken rung is using that metaphor of career progression as a ladder, a career ladder that you climb. So that broken rung, that rung is that first step from a role, um, something that we call in big tech, like an IC role, an independent contributor, someone who doesn't have a team that they're managing. So that's first step from an IC role to a management role, that first step on the management ladder. Now, for every men, for every 100 men who take that first step, only 87 women take that first step and as you say it's not because we're coming into the workplace less qualified women are earning more bachelor's degrees than any other group in in the US black women are earning the most bachelor's degrees of all and we see that they enter the workplace and they have all of these ambitions so it's not an ambition gap either they're equally ambitious but still for every 100 men who get to take that first leadership step only 87 women do And the research suggests that if we corrected that number, if we made that equal 100 and 100, we would have two times as many women in SVP positions or in C-suite positions. Because when for every 100 men, you only have 87 women to choose from for the next step up, you're probably going to pick a man there. And then in that next step, you get disproportionately male. And we continue to shrink and shrink and self-select until we get to that 61% representation of white men at the C-suite, because they've been cherry-picked at every level since that first step. And even the ones who, the women who are
0: still knocking around, are doing a lot, as you say, of corporate housework, Mm -hmm. and they're quite used to being a bit invisible. So they're being kept very busy doing all these very important invisible tasks. So there isn't time for the glamour work. There isn't time for the corporate visibility, for the Mm face-to-face, for the, you know... The golf and the dinners and whatever it might be because you know they've got different kinds of responsibilities
2: absolutely because we see these women being disproportionately brought in for their soft skills they end up taking on the vast majority of dei work in the workplace they end up taking on the vast majority of mentoring they end up taking on the vast majority of just checking in with your team and managing their workload and seeing if they're okay that disproportionately falls to women but women still say that they're not recognized or rewarded for that when it comes to pay rises or promotions or compensation or even recognition and respect within the business and because it's not shiny it's not shiny it's not sexy it's not cool and it's not what we think of when we think of what leaders do right you know kind people nice people mums take care of you but leaders are busy they're not going to hold your hand
1: Yeah, exactly. I think that's also the the sort of the great tragedy of all of this as well, is that women are just sort of downgraded for their potential. Mm. And you just you you I really wonder about how how those metrics are kind of worked out but I do understand it I have been there I have felt that I was not seen for my potential and then I and therefore I moved on uh, from the place I was working at but there's something sort of heartbreaking about not being able to kind of you know translate that even with all the good work that one is doing and even though one is contributing is that sort of Yes, that. Well, we just can't see the potential. Yes, as a well, we'll give
0: this woman a seat at the table. That it's just that that seat's can have a really wobbly leg and is quite likely to collapse at any point. Yeah. But if it does, it's probably because she has a big bottom. I mean, you know, it's really caveman stuff going on here, isn't it? I suppose, and as you say, one of the most useful things that we can do is just is noticing. Because mm-hmm. if you you know that thing when you when you you just open up a corner of your brain and you start to notice a certain thing and you can quite easily become obsessed because you can start to see that it's everywhere
2: Mm -hmm. and that's the main feedback I get from so the glass cliff isn't out until the 7th of March which is a couple of weeks away when we're recording so I've had some early readers having a look at bits and you two were kind enough to be not only early readers but to give me a quote for the cover which I'm so grateful for thank you I was so excited when it came through
0: (laughs) We were so excited we were to be so asked. Excited, yeah.
2: But one of the main things I get from people who read it for the first time or people who watch my TED talk about the topic is they say, I've seen this. I've seen this everywhere. And once you start to recognise it, you recognise it, that it is all over the place. Like when we first started asking women to like make notice, take notice of who was being asked to make meeting notes or do any of that stuff or how often they got interrupted. I think you just need someone to say, have you noticed this? And then we can start to make a change around it. But I think until we have the words, until we have the language, until we have the prompt, we don't always have the opportunity to notice it.
0: So one of the things I really love about your work, your writing and your talks, is because what you are producing is a body of work that that does and should inflame us and make us angry. But yet somehow you're, there's something so calm <laughs> and reassuring about you that I feel that I can get, you know, absolutely furious, but I'm in safe hands to do so. Yes, do you feel that? Yes,
2: totally. And that we can somehow fix it.
0: Yes. It all seems possible with you, Sophie. <laughs> yes.
2: <Yeah. laughs> Thank you. A, a lot of people said it makes them angry, which I I think is really important because what's happening is bullshit. Like it's not fair. It's not reasonable. It's not just. And as an autistic person, I have a very strong sense of justice and fairness. And I think that's that's why I write about the things that I do because I'm just like, I just I just don't believe that if people knew that these terribly unfair, unjust things were happening, they wouldn't do something about it. So I'm just trying to be like, let me tell you about this thing and then we can fix it together, right?
1: My daughter's school did Made in Dagenham, the musical for Christmas. And honestly, half the women in the audience are crying because at the end because things have changed so little since their demands which was equal pay (laughs) I mean you know for the same skill it was extraordinary actually these sort of like brilliant mothers who have exhausted themselves to get there to the Christmas play you know put everything whatever and they're just there weeping because they know and they're looking at their own children thinking fuck anyway
2: yeah I mean these 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 women these other mums like And at Christmas, this super busy time, we see that even when women become super, super senior in in the workplace, the expectations that they have of them at home don't change. The expectations that men have do change. So 58% of entry-level women and just 30% of entry-level men say that they do all or most of the housework in their home. When we look at the most senior men, only 13% of the most senior men say they're still responsible for the housework in their home and that that figure for women that started at 58% has gone down to 52%. So men only ever did 30 and then switched to 13, women did 58 and then just shrink ever so slightly to 52. So all of these conversations that we're having about all of this work and labour that women have to do in the workplace that's also not getting taken off them at home so I'm not surprised that you went to a, a play about <laughs> feminism and wept and all these like harassed women over Christmas trying to, trying to just trying to live
1: yeah oh my god it Christmas was. I know anyway but also the other thing that's so that we have to be grown up about it because you know we are now in a two-income society essentially the maths ain't math it wasn't designed that say. way
0: it was designed wasn't it for one person to be at home
1: but it just isn't financially possible for people to build lives like that anymore
0: yes 50 percent of men say that the glass cliff does not exist five <laughs> percent of women say the glass cliff does not exist mm-hmm. i basically learnt your book off by heart at this point <laughs>
2: yeah you know it um, better than i
0: do <laughs> so let's hear go out and start noticing and see where that takes us yes but sophie you are a joy thank you so much for coming on again we look forward to having you on again and again and again and um yes the glass clip is out on march the 7th yes and we wish you the best of luck with it and we urge people to have a read
2: yeah absolutely thanks sophie thank, thank you so you much so much. it's always such a pleasure to see and talk to you thank you for having
1: me you've been listening to annabelle rifkin and emily McMeekin of the mid-art Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe.